Let's talk this morning about Revelation in chapter 14. In the book of Revelation so far, I've reminded you week after week after week in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 19, we have this divinely inspired outline of the book. And where we're at today is in the middle of the Great Tribulation. We're seeing all these visions kind of come to fruition. We're seeing the Antichrist come onto the scene. No, he's not Donald Trump. No, he's not Barack Obama. Like, he's going to come onto the scene, and we, as the church, from what I believe about what the book of Revelation teaches and the rest of the Bible teaches, is that we won't be around. And so in this time, there will be an Antichrist, and he's described in chapter 13 as a beast. But he won't look like a beast. Just like Satan is described in the Bible as this roaring lion seeking whom he may devour with his teeth, Satan doesn't show up and go, I'm going to get you. He shows up and goes, did God really say this? And don't you think you can be a Christian and still do that? And does God really have his best intentions in mind for you? Or is he holding back something that's good for you? So it's all about this subtle serpent showing up in the garden, talking to Adam and Eve and going, did God really say? And that's insidious, right? Because you hear it and you go, I don't know. I actually don't know what God said. And you start to doubt whether or not he truly loves you or not. And then you start to follow that path and it's a slip and slide straight to the pit of hell. And so with that being said, this morning as we look at this and chapter 1 verse 19, Jesus actually gave a vision to John while he was on the island of Patmos in a prison camp. And he said this, he said, write the things which you have seen, the things from the past, and write the things which are, the things that are now happening, and the things which will take place, metatauta in the Greek, after these things. And so the things that he had seen, the gospel writer John walked with Jesus. He saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw him heal people. And then he was actually, even at this point, almost 90 years old, he'd seen a lot. So he's saying, write down the things you have seen. Write down the things that now are. And then he speaks in chapter 2 and 3 to these seven churches, seven literal churches. And he speaks a word by the Holy Spirit to these churches. Historically, it, there, it plays out in the timeline of history and church history. But then also chapter 4 all the way through the end is the things that will happen after these things. And so we've been in this for a while, but in chapter 14, we are right after the revealing of, in chapter 13, the Antichrist. And so here we have in chapter 13 from last week, beast number one was the Antichrist. And many people think that the Antichrist will be someone that will battle against Jesus, and, and he will, but really more than that, he will come on the scene and try to replace Jesus. He'll be a poor counterfeit savior. He'll show up and he'll be a great peacekeeper. He'll make peace on the earth. Well, somebody comes and makes world peace, we're going to look at him and go, wow, this guy's unlike anybody ever. This is a miracle. It's got to be the Messiah. And the Israelite people will look at him and go, this is the Messiah. And they'll give him the right to do things in their nation that no one else has ever been able to do. He'll make peace in the Middle East, by the way. But what will happen is that he'll set up this false worship system. They'll be allowed to build up the temple on the Temple Mount. It'll be right next to the Dome of the Rock, many believe. And then 
just when everything seems like it's just right, he's going to set up an idol in the temple. And he's going to require everyone to worship him as God. And he will come on the scene and, and there will also be a false prophet, the second beast of chapter 13. And he'll do great signs and wonders. Jesus said to his disciples and to those that were listening that, you know, he said, a foolish and a perverse generation seeks a sign. Satan would love to do a miraculous sign and dupe the whole world. And he will. So the false prophet comes on the scene and I kind of equate him to the unholy spirit. And John said in first John chapter four that you should test the spirits. Any spirit that comes along and says that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is of God. And anyone that says that Jesus Christ is not God, he's not of God. He's unholy. He's foul. He's perverse. He, and so what we find is that through this false prophet and through the Antichrist, uh, who gives them the authority and the power to do what they're doing is actually Satan, the great dragon spoken of in Revelation chapter 12. And as he's spoken of, what we find is that all of the prophet and the false Christ will actually point the whole world to the Father. But it won't be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It will be to the Father of lies, the great dragon, Satan himself, that was desiring to be worshipped, desiring to be like God, to have a position of prominence, even in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And so he gains authority, this last bullet point says, he gains authority by using miraculous signs, power given him from Satan, they deceive people, and they introduce an economic system that requires people to have his name branded on them. And he decrees death penalty for all those who refuse to worship. So he will literally have the world under his thumb. Satan will put you into bondage so that you'll follow him. But to me, any system, any government that puts you into bondage so that you'll follow their way, they always ensnare you so they can drag you their way. You're not following them. You're being forced. It's called slavery, and sin does that. It's got a hook, and so he dangles the carrot. We bite the hook, and we get reeled right in. Before you know it, you have no power to save yourself, just like you never did, and you can't get off the hook. It's got that little barb, you know, when you go fishing. The fish bites the hook, and then like you can't the the hook back off. And the conservation's always said you need to shave the barb off. Well, then you lose your fish. So it's like that that's neither here nor there. That being said, Revelation 13 is all about the Antichrist. But then in chapter 14, what we have is this contrast, and this contrast is kind of a parenthetical statement before we get to the the last of the judgments that we've been reading about in the great tribulation. It's going to be the bowl judgments. These great bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out on the world and it's going to usher in the new kingdom. Remember, God's preparing the people through the tribulation. He's convicting the world. To those that are convicted, they'll repent and turn to follow Jesus. To those that are not convicted and go, I'm going to do my own thing anyway, they're, they're going to be judged. And so in chapter 14, he starts by saying, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 
having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, which we discussed in chapter 4 and 5, and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So verse 1 starts by saying, I saw a lamb. And that lamb was on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So everyone at some point or another will have a name written on their heads. In the tribulation, you'll have the option to take the mark of the beast. But if you remember with me, when this 144,000, these 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, not great at math, but 12 times 12 is 144. Add the three zeros, you got the 144,000. We talked about that before. But they are Jewish males, and they are evangelists. And they are the first fruits of the nation of Israel in the tribulation that will be saved. And they proclaim this everlasting gospel to a generation that's more ungodly, believe it or not, than the one that you and I live in right now. And there are many from all the nations around the world that hear their testimony, that they believe in Jesus as their Messiah, recognizing that they failed, that they missed him at his first coming. And they start proclaiming it. And Gentiles from all over the world are saved. And they become sons and daughters of God, but they will die for their faith in the tribulation. So the question becomes, this Mount Zion that he's standing on in chapter 14, verse 1, is it a heavenly Mount Zion or is it the earthly Mount Zion? Well, if you remember from chapter 4 and 5 that those who follow the Lamb were taken up, that we've not been appointed to wrath, but at this time in the great tribulation, it is believed that these 144,000 have been taken up before their foes And they're now in the presence of the Lord, that they've been taken up. They're with him on the heavenly Mount Zion, and they are worshiping. Now, whether or not you believe that, it's okay, because what it says next is that these 144,000, here's what they do. They follow the lamb. Jesus said about his sheep, he said, you'll know my sheep because they know my voice and they follow me. Other shepherds come in, they don't listen to them. But my sheep know my voice, and they stay with me. So these 144,000, they follow the lamb. But the comparison and a thought for another time is that the church, the bride of Christ, at the culmination, they are taken up to be with their husband. We are the bride of Christ, the church. That's what Scripture describes this as in Ephesians chapter 5. What happens at the marriage is that the marriage is consummated. We have not consummated this union yet with Jesus. We're not with him. We are waiting for his return. He's gone off to prepare a place. And when he comes back, we will go with him to where he has prepared for us. 
So at that time, we'll already be with him. The marriage supper of the Lamb will have taken place, but these 144,000 will be servants of the Lamb. And the servants will be with the Lamb. They won't be... Uh, anyway, just a thought that's maybe not fully developed. But that being said, that we will, they will be with Christ. Where he is, they go. And as believers, by the way, this is how we should be described. Where Jesus is, there we should be found. Where Jesus is at work, we ought to be working alongside. The Christian life is not that complicated. We tend to mystify it. But where we see God at work, where we see people's hearts tenderized to hear what God would have to say with them, to them, we should be there being his hands and feet and working alongside of his work that's already taking place. So as we continue in verse 1 through 5, I want to talk about a word that's not said anymore. I was talking with my pastor this week, and his dad said this something to him that kind of, as I was reading this passage, he said, the word that you don't hear anymore in church is the word consecrate. And so I was challenged by that. I said, well, I'm going to say it this week, whether it applies or not. I'm going to say it. He's not going to say that about our church. But then I googled the word. The, The word consecrate means this, to make or declare something sacred, to dedicate formally to a religious or a divine purpose. And as I was reading Revelation 14, I thought, the 144,000, they were consecrated to the Lord. They were formally dedicated to a religious or a divine, God had a divine purpose for them. By the way, as the bride of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, whether you recognize it or not, God has consecrated you. Look at how they're described in this chapter. They were consecrated by God. You don't have to consecrate yourself. God consecrates you. When you repent of your sin, you decide you want to follow Jesus, he consecrates you. How does he do it? He seals you with his spirit. He puts his mark upon you. Not a mark in the flesh, not a circumcision as described in the Old Testament, but he circumcises our hearts. He, he peels away the hard outer shell and he makes us sensitive to his leading. We are consecrated. They were consecrated. They were sealed by God, made his, made for his purpose. They were re- redeemed from among men, redeemed from earth. What's redeemed mean? They were bought. They were bought back from the slavery of sin and death. No longer owned by them, no longer f- afraid of them, But God redeemed us by what? Not by silver, not by gold, but by his blood that he poured out freely so that we would not have to experience the wrath of God. He took our penalty, our punishment, and gave us his righteousness. And then he redeemed them from among men and from earth. Now think about the time and the tribulation. These 144,000 are living in the days that are even worse than the days of Noah. What did God do in the days of Noah? He flooded the entire earth. It's got to be pretty bad if he drowns everybody. But there was one group that was taken up above that punishment, that wrath, and that was Noah and his family. They were saved through the ark. So when the, the people that have been told the judgment's coming, they got in the boat. Who shut the boat? If you read about it in Genesis, it actually says that God shut the boat. He sealed it. They walk in, he seals. 
We walk in and we confess our sin to Jesus. He seals us by his Holy Spirit. We're taken up. We're not appointed to wrath, but we're actually appointed to be saved. Saved spiritually, and in this case, saved physically from the wrath that's going on in the earth. Now look at this also. Because there's one side of salvation. We are consecrated by God. There's nothing we can do to be consecrated other than trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. But then there's the other side of it. God consecrate, We have to consecrate ourselves. We have to make daily decisions. Am I going to walk in the Spirit and obey the, the things that God's taught me? Or am I going to walk in the flesh and be disobedient or rebellious against God's leading? They consecrated themselves. They were virgins. Does that mean that sex is evil and it's wrong? No. What it's saying is that in the days of judgment, in the days of the great tribulation, they decided rather to be not involved physically with women, but to dedicate themselves to the service of the Lord. Think about the people with the most mighty testimony in the New Testament even. John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets according to the words of Jesus. He wasn't married he was dedicated to the service of God. Paul the Apostle covered more ground than anybody that you read about in the New Testament. Started more churches than anybody. He said it's, it's better for man to remain unmarried because when he gets married, he now has to, he now has to think about the things and, and take care of his wife and his family. And he should as a godly man. If a man doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever is what it says. But my point is, is that these men decided to not be involved with women, not because that's evil, but because they wanted to be wholeheartedly sold out to serving God and his purposes. And so they were consecrated. They made that decision. They weren't forced to do that. God's not in the business of forcing us to do these things. Look at this also. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. We talked about that. They had no deceit in their mouth. That includes, by the way, white lies. Does this garment make me look fat? They had to worry about that, right? They, they weren't involved in that. You know, hey, what do you think about this outfit? I don't care. <laughs> like, they didn't even have to lie about it. But my point is, is that they, they didn't deceive with their lips. Now contrast that to the beasts. Contrast that to the Antichrist, the, the, anti, the, the unholy spirit. They won converts by lying to them. They promised them something that they couldn't deliver, just like sin. Sin promises joy and delight and fulfillment. And guess what? Every time, uh, it doesn't fulfill that. But they had no deceit in their mouths, and they were without fault in God's sight. Now, you, you can ask anybody, that's, that's a... Wow. No fault, not in the sight of men, but before God's throne, they were found without fault. Do you know that that's something that's afforded to you and I? Do you know that as you stand in the presence of God under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he looks down upon you, and as you're before his throne, this is what's going to happen. He's going to look down on you, and if you are in Christ without fault completely before the throne of God. No condemnation. 
No sin accounted against you. It was all put on Jesus on the cross. Wow. If I just even take a cursory glance at my history, that's saying something. His blood is powerful. And so all that to be said, they made decisions to live as if their sins had been forgiven. If you are a person who has been forgiven, it should change how you continue to live once you've been forgiven. Shouldn't it? The results of this holiness, this consecration. God consecrated them, right? They consecrated themselves because God had consecrated them. But then the result of that holiness that comes from that is power and unity and amazing, great boldness and testimony. It says they sang with one voice. It says all of a sudden from the throne room, I heard a voice, the voice of many waters. One song. They sang a song. Look at this. A song that only... Let's read that verse. It says there in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 3, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, which there were 24, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000. The word there in the Greek that no one could learn that song, it actually... This is a bad rendition, but it, it actually means that no one had the right to sing this song except them. No one had the right or the ability to learn the song because they didn't have the right. No one could sing the song they were singing except them because they were consecrated. Because God had consecrated them, only they could sing the song. So it says they sang a song that only they had the right to sing. They are the first fruits to God and the Lamb. Now in the Old Testament, when you would plant crops and they would grow and harvest time would come in the fall, they would gather up, they would bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. I'm probably butchering that. But the idea is they would bring in what would grow, the increase of their labor. But they recognized that no matter how much labor they did, all of the increase, all of the fruit came as a result of God's grace upon them. Sunshine rain and the land to plot it on and so once they gathered it in they would take the first fruits and they would gobble it up themselves no they would give it to god a portion of it by the way would be in the eyes of the world wasted they would burn it well that's ridiculous don't you know that there's people all over the world starving so what we're going to give the first fruits to god and then some of that would be given to the people that were serving in the temple and making the offerings, interceding on behalf of the nation. God would provide for them through that. But then also there would be an offering. Just as They'd burn it. And all that would happen is there would be smoke that would rise up from it. Some of it would be the fat of animals, barbecue smell. Before the throne of God, God loves the smell of barbecue. Imagine that. But then it would also be given up as a thank offering. God doesn't want us to give things to him that we're not thankful for. And so as they would give the first fruits, it would basically be saying to, them, to God, thank you for what you provided for us. And they would just give it up and dance and sing and just be thankful. They would praise God for what they had. So verse 6, as we continue on and we speed up the pace a little bit. Verse 6 says, And when I... Oops, 
two pages. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. We have two things that we tend to do. We either worship our creator or we worship something he created. That's what man does. That's, that's all of religion, worshiping God or, in contrast, worshiping something that God created. So this first angel, there's three angels come on the scene. I have there for you. Hark, three herald angels sing. But here we have the first angel. He gets up and he sings and he says and he proclaims. He proclaims, here's the gospel. Fear God. Give glory to him. And all of this is the same thing that the wisest man that ever walked the face of the planet in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. Take me a little bit to get there. But in Ecclesiastes, the wisest man in all the earth, King Solomon, although he didn't always obey the wisdom, he had wisdom from God, and he went on this ecclesiastical search. He was trying to figure out what life was about. He had the means to do it. By the way, if you're on your own search to find out what means something and how you can get along in life and find comfort in the best circumstances possible, in comparison, I don't care how much money you have, he has more than any of us could ever even dream of having. We were reading uh, yesterday in First Kings, and it said that Solomon in his most affluent days, he made silver so common in Israel that it was more than the rocks in Israel, which is saying something because it's very rocky. And so it became like rocks. Oh, look, silver. Um, but that being said, he, he tried everything. He engaged in everything. Anything that you could think of that would make you feel good or might make you comfortable, not, might make you think, experience things in a, in a higher plane, if you think of it. And he got to the end of all of it, and this is what he said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I've done the science project. I've tried it all. I've tried it all to the nth degree. He said, this is the conclusion I came to. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. It's his everything. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so that's what this angel's saying. He says, give God glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then verse 8, we have the second of the two angels. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So this second angel proclaims a warning, the warning of judgment. There are two cities. There's the city of God, the kingdom of God, and there's the city of Babylon. Babylon began in Genesis, right after the flood. They built the big tower, and this tower was to save themselves. 
They even built the tower to the heavens, not only to worship the heavens, but they built the tower and they covered it in pitch. The same thing they covered the outside of the ark with. They were waterproofing it so that if the world ever flooded again, even though God said he would never do it, if he does, we've got life insurance. And so they built this big tower and they all spoke the same language and they were trying to work together for one world unity. We're getting ready to see that, by the way. But in the course of this, God said in the, the triune Godhead, it says that God, they, we, are seeing what God is doing, what people are doing on the earth, and they're, they're going to be successful. So I'm going to confuse their language so that they can no longer work together. Wait a minute, why? So that they wouldn't reject God. They needed to be dependent upon God to have a real relationship with them in order to live out this relationship he made them for. And if we're able to find peace on our own, then we reject the God who created us for relationship with him. And so the second angel says, for those of you who are trusting in the great city Babylon and this Great tribulation will happen when a revived version of the Roman Empire will conquer the whole world and will have peace and they'll have this banner and, and they'll rule everything. And what we know is that it's ultimately going to lead to destruction. And so people are going to have a tendency to trust in, imagine this, the government. They're going to have a tendency to trust in, imagine this, one person, but it won't be Jesus. And so it's going to be built on a house of cards. So what this angel warns after saying, fear God and follow him and give him glory, he says, by the way, in contrast to that, <laughs> don't trust in Babylon. It's fallen. It's going to fall, but it has already been judged. Now in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, John's already said something like this before. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. I'll turn there so I don't miss or unquote, you know, wrongly quote it. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. He says, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of your eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And guess what? The world is passing away, even the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever, eternally. And then Second Peter goes on to say this in chapter 3, verse 10. Peter writes this, the day of the Lord, this is the day of God's reckoning, the judgment of God, it will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for, even hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, 
look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But then there's this phrase at the end of this in verse 8, chapter 14. Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And if you turn with me to James chapter 4, one more book to the left, two, from where we were in Second Peter, James chapter 4, verse 4. James is a hard hitter, and he says some things that are meant to go, I can't believe you just called me that. And he, he's speaking to the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Christians at the time. In chapter 4, verse 4 of James, he says, adulterers. I don't know about you, but that makes me mad if somebody calls me an adulterer. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or war with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not know, or do you think that the scriptures say in vain that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers is jealous? He yearns for us jealously. He yearns for us jealously. Basically what he's saying here is that he's proclaiming for us as He's talking to this world at the time that's in tribulation, but he's proclaiming to the world that you're either a friend of God or a friend of the world. You can't be both. And he actually equates friendship with the world as adultery against God. And so he's warning against this adultery. What's interesting is there's this passage that I'd like for you to read if you have time later in Numbers chapter 5. And it says there in the law that if there's a husband in the nation of Israel that's jealous over his wife, thinking that she's stepping out on him, that he's to take her to the priest who will then do this crazy thing where he actually sweeps around in the temple, gathers dust from the floor of the temple, puts it in a glass, mixes it with water, prays over it, asks her if she's been cheating on her husband, and if she hasn't or has, either way, she gets to drink from this cup of indignation, this cup of jealousy. And what it is, is it's basically putting this in the hands of the Lord. So if she's cheated on him, the Lord will judge her. And if she is not, then the cup will not hurt her. So when she drinks this cup... The priest prays over her. If, if she's been unfaithful to her husband, then she drinks it, then her side will swell up and essentially make her sick and she'll die. And if she has not cheated on her husband and she drinks of this and she's not been unfaithful, then the Lord will protect her from it. Why is that in there? It's in there to point us to ultimately what's going to happen to the bride of Christ if we've been unfaithful to God or if we've been faithful to him. If we've been faithful to God, we're saved by him. And he's going to, by the way, shield us from the cup of his wrath and indignation. If we've been unfaithful and we've been adulterers in the faith, then that judgment will come upon us as a thief in the night. 
And so all of that said, are you trusting in Babylon or are you trusting in the kingdom of God to save you? And then in verse 6 through 11, the third angel in verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast from the previous chapter and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup, uh, into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So if anybody has ever told you that the Bible doesn't actually talk about hell and it's not a real place, I, I have no argument except Scripture says otherwise. But in there, this third angel proclaims specific warnings to those who would be tempted to just, you know what, it's easier to go with the flow, I'll take the mark, I'll, I'll follow the economic system, and it would be tempting, right? You can't go to Aldi's, you can't go to Save-A-Lot, you can't go to Amazon.com and buy anything unless you got the, the name of the beast tattooed on your head. I mean, think about this and just play along with me for a little bit. For a little while here, we've been told we couldn't go out in public unless we put a mask on. And how many of you said, absolutely not? Most of us are like, look, I got to go get groceries. So we do what we got to do. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I think as Christians, we need to be socially responsible. We need to look like we care. We need to care and love our neighbor. But my point is, that's around the world right now. The whole world doing it. Imagine you're told you can't go to Walmart and get your groceries unless you got the mark. Here or here. The name of the beast. What are you going to do? You're just going to not buy? It will be harder than you think to make that decision. It will seem reasonable and safe to just do what they've told you. But at that point, he warns those who take the mark of the beast are, are in trouble. They're, they're going to have some issues because it's not just worshiping. It, it, it's not just the mark. They're, they're actually being told to worship the beast and we're to worship no other gods. And so in verse 10, what stands out to me of all of this, among from, aside from the description of torment and hell, verse 10 stands out. It says, he himself shall also drink of the wine of God's wrath. Now, in the tribulation, these are all people that, that, that are going to drink of the wine of God's wrath. They're going to receive the consequences of God's wrath on a rebellious, God-rejecting world. But what I want to point out is that we don't have to do that. Even for the people that are in the tribulation, God took the wrath of God's judgment in Jesus on the cross so that we don't have to receive the wrath of God and his judgment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 10 says, God's not appointed us to wrath, but instead to be saved. That his wrath was put on Jesus so that we don't have to experience the wrath. And that will be afforded. The first angel proclaimed that already to the God-rejecting world. 
God is not a God that desires to judge the people he created. In the tribulation, people are rejecting him. People are murdering his faithful. And he is still reaching out his hands going, I'm still not willing that any should perish. You don't have to die. You don't have to be judged. You don't have to experience what you're experiencing. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. And in Psalm chapter 116, verse 13, and I'm going to turn there, he says this. Basically, what can I render to the Lord? What can I do for God? He created me. Bear with me for just a minute. It's going to be good, I promise. It's going to be awesome. It's going to change your whole life. Psalm 116. Verse 12 says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup. Do a study on the cup in the Bible. It's interesting. There's the cups of wrath. But here he says, I will take up the cup of salvation. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Then it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all the saints. So this cup of salvation has been offered to each one of us. We don't have to drink the cup of judgment. We can drink freely of the cup of salvation that's been offered, and it doesn't run out. It's an overflowing cup. And Jesus already drank the cup of wrath that we deserve on our behalf. Matthew chapter 26. I won't go there for time's sake, but... You remember the time in the garden. He goes to the garden of Gethsemane. He takes his disciples with him, and he goes and he has prayer time. And he says, Father, and he's feeling weighed down upon. He's being crushed. He's in the garden of olive pressing. The oil's been squeezed out of him. And as he's being crushed by the weight of the world and the sin of the world, he prays, Father, if there's any other way that the world can be saved, then let this cup pass from me but then he says not my will but yours be done and he prays that three times you know what he does after he prays it the third time he heads to the cross he gets ready to drink the cup of god's wrath god's wrath's already been poured out on jesus and so in john chapter 3 it says this in verse 36 John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God instead remains on him. And so here we have these angels making these announcements. And in the meantime, verse 12 says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So believers at this time will have to decide, take the mark or worship the beast. Or, so the saints are described here. They keep the commandments of God even in the evil day. They live by faith in Jesus. And the voice from heaven tells John, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord at this time. 
But Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And they obtain their final reward, rest for their souls from their labors, and their works follow them. And I have there for you a quote from C.T. Studd, who said, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. So as we close, verse 14 through 16, he starts to talk about harvest. Verse 14, he says, Then I looked. Behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head golden crowns, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The man, Mark chapter 4 talks about this man. A man went out and sowed seed, and then it took root. And overnight, he doesn't know how it took place, but it grew up. And if you look at that passage, I believe that's Jesus a picture of Jesus sowing seed on the earth. But then in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus speaking to his disciples said, the, look out to the fields, the harvest is white, excuse me, the fields are white for harvest. Indeed, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest, who we're seeing in this passage, that he would send out laborers to reap for the kingdom. And then the parable of the wheat and the tares is spoken of in Matthew chapter 13, this progression. The seed's been sown, the laborers are being sent out, but then the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus has sown seed on earth. And in the meantime, the enemy has come behind him and sowed all kinds of tares. Tares are like things you don't want in your harvest. They're not useful for anything. They just take up ground and they choke out good seed. Your bread is made from wheat. The tears kind of like crowd that out. But in the midst of that, what happens is the disciples say, well, does that mean that we should go out into the fields and rip out all of the tares? And he says, no, there will always be tares. And if you rip out the tares, you might accidentally rip out some of the wheat. And he says, therefore, leave them in there. But at the time of the harvest, we'll separate the wheat from the tares. The wheat will be taken and put into the barns the tares will be taken out and what? Burned in the fires. And so there's still judgment. But the sickle is put into the field of harvest and he's referring to the book of Joel in the Old Testament in chapter 3, verse 12, where the same thing is being spoken of. I thought I marked this. Joel chapter 3. Probably not going to find it. I'm not the Bible drill guy. Oh, there it is. Thank you, Lord. Joel chapter 3, verse 12. There's a call to repentance that takes place. And Joel writes, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kind and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm, and who knows if he will turn and relent and leave blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? I think I read the wrong passage. That was chapter two. It was awesome though, right? I was in. I was like, man, I think it should get there soon. It didn't. But then in Joel chapter three, see, I was trying to see if you guys were paying attention. He says, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jump in Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. I will not turn away from its punishment. Oops, good grief. Those pages are sticking together. Come go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So he says, come, and I'm going to harvest, and it's going to be in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Well, if you know your Old Testament history, the valley of Jehoshaphat is none other than the now existing valley of Megiddo. And it is where the great valley, this battlefield will take place where all the nations will get together, they'll work together, and they'll come to fight against Jesus and his armies. The great battle of Armageddon. And then we're Armageddon out of here. And so the plentiful harvest leads up to this valley of Megiddo will be filled with not only harvest, but with blood from the slaughter by Jesus Christ. He came the first time, meek and mild. He'll come the second time, and he will defeat his enemies. He'll take us to the grapes, crushing and blood from them. This, this goes on to the next part of the passage, and I promise I'm actually closing. I already said that. So then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar and had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great vine, excuse me, wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles. It's a lot of blood. For 1,600 furlongs. So it was up to the bridle for 1,600 furlongs, which in our vernacular is two. Hundred miles. So this judgment that will take place will be great. The wine press. So I have there for you a picture of what we know as grape stomping. But what it says is that when Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, and he crosses the Kidron Valley, his garments will be stained as if someone had been treading out the wine press. He will come with 10,000s of his saints 
His garments, white as snow, will be trampled out, and they'll be covered in blood from judgment on the men and women of the earth who have rejected him. But what's interesting about the phraseology is the wine press says that the, the grapes were trampled outside the city. The blood of the guilty is required for their sins. Leviticus said, without the, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if someone sheds blood, then blood will be required of him. Uh, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. On the day that you eat of the fruit, Genesis chapter 3 or 2, or whenever it was, in the beginning of Genesis, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. Death. Death came in because of sin. But what's great about this is that in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus has already been tread out for us. He's the winepress treader. But in Hebrews chapter 13, there's this little interesting phrase, kind of mimics what we just read in Revelation. Verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, set them apart. He suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have a continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And then he says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So in Revelation, we see this culmination of the great tribulation. We see the beast, and then we see the, the faithful, those who are following the lamb wherever he goes. And then it seems as the corner turns and the wrath of God is now poured out on the rest of the Christ-rejecting world, leading into the bold judgments that would be poured out. But the good news is, is that because of Jesus Christ, no man, no woman, no child will ever have to experience that if they come to him humbly and repent and receive his forgiveness rather than his judgment. And so that's the good news for us. And so now we have the opportunity to walk as if that's already taken place for us. To live as if the wrath is not even something we need to worry about anymore. But to walk in thanksgiving. To be harvested uh, and yet not to be judged. And so the question becomes, are we ripe for harvest or are we ripe for judgment? Judgment is coming, but we can be harvested instead and be fruit that brings glory to God. And so, Father, um, not the most exciting thing to talk about, judgment. But I thank you that on the cross, you bore the judgment so that we don't have to. I pray for each one here today. And as we go out to, to live in the community and work in our jobs and interact with folks, Lord, that we would be bold 
and emboldened, that we'd be consecrated for a divine purpose to share the bad news, which is bad, but the good news that there's a Savior who has bore the brunt and taken all of our sin if we're willing to humble ourselves and repent and receive that forgiveness. Father, help us not to walk any longer bearing the shame or the guilt or the weight of our sin, but to truly give it to you and recognize that you did it all. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your finished work. And I thank you for the patience of these here today. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them? Would you give them faith to walk and take what we've learned today and apply it to walk in your newness, to walk in your righteousness? In Jesus' name, amen.